0: He puts upon my heart, it was one of those things that for the last couple of weeks, he's been putting kind of two things on my heart to share within one. And I want to share those with you here this morning. And I want us to uh, kind of stay in the season of being free. Uh, we entitled this sermon series Free at Last because one of the things that's a prayer for my church and for you and for your families is that the things that are holding you from freedom, the things that are holding you down, would truly be released in your life. That they would truly be for once and for all because many of us might be in this room tonight and you've been carrying things for a very, very long time. You've been carrying some things for so long, they've actually become a part of you. That you don't really know what it would be like if you were really free from it because there's almost this fear. They say that, that people become dispositioned to a certain fear so much that they cannot imagine what it would not be, what it would be like to live without that fear. Some of us may know that there are people who they might have a critical spirit. They might have a huge critical spirit. And I've come to understand through many years of pastoral counseling that what I've come to the conclusion is this is some people they don't want to be critical but there's a fear within them. that There is a fear within them to live any other way. It's almost like a subconscious. They don't know what they would do like if they didn't have a lot of things to complain about or a lot of things to worry about or different things like that. And so (laughs) for us, we have to examine these things within our life. And we have to say that that's not a spirit that God wants us to live in. Amen? That is not something that God wants. That is something that keeps us down. It keeps us grounded. It keeps us from living a free life. And so last night, uh, I woke up at one o'clock in the morning to the beautiful, beautiful sound of my son throwing up on every inch of my house. It was glorious. I tell you, if you've been a parent, you've been in that situation. You just fell asleep and all of a sudden you hear the pitter-pats of the feet run to the bathroom and you hear the sound that is just terrible and you go, he didn't make it anywhere near where he was supposed to make it, right? So we were up. Uh, My wife and I were up uh, various hours. She was up majority of the hours there. Um, And then, of course, I'm that kind of person. If anybody else is in this room, once you're up, falling back asleep, it doesn't just happen. It's kind of a process. You know, for those of you that are in the room that you are professional sleepers, I want to tell you, I envy you, right? You could sleep eight hours, get up, eat some food, go back to sleep for the rest of the night. I am not that person. I would crave to be that person. And so my mind began wandering, and I use a lot of that time to pray, to be honest with you. When I can't fall asleep, I kind of get into a real strong prayer mode. Many of you I pray for, family situations, the prayer list that goes out each week. I pray for those. I want to encourage you, please, uh, in your bulletin, there is a prayer request card. Write down those prayers because I know that there are many people like me um, who constantly lift those up throughout the week. But it's an awesome thing when you're in that kind of prayer mode. But if you're like me a little bit too, you're praying so long that your mind starts to kind of wander. Anybody have that? You know, you start praying for your family, your spouse, your children. All of a sudden, you're thinking about what kind of pizza you want at lunch. Or all of a sudden, you're praying for something. You're going, man, my car needs an oil change. And then you got to kind of come back around, whatever it might be. And, and, And I'm no exception. My mind kind of wanders that way. And I begin to pray over the message this morning. And as I begin to pray over the message, and the part of what we're going to talk about is freedom in forgiveness and failure. Freedom in that, and understanding that. I begin to just kind of pray over that. And when you look at the essence of freedom, freedom, what it does is it it, it, it exuberates an emotion, right? Like you can tell a free person, you can tell a happy person, you can tell a sad person. There's a good chance that we can do by the expressions on our face, or maybe our response is that we can see that a person is in this particular state. If you've ever walked into a room and you're in a good mood and you know that there is Dr. Grumpy Pants right there, right? And you walk in, hey, good morning, how's it going? Uh. You know that where that person is feeling. They've exuberated something in, uh, that, that is, they've communicated something by the way that they're feeling. And I think that's true when we're talking about freedom. And I began to pray over this this night, and I started to think of expressions of freedom, like expressions of excitement. I'm a big sports fan, and I love sports. And I started, this is where my mind started going. My mind is exhausting. You would not want to live five minutes in my brain. But I started thinking about freedom, and then I started somehow thinking about sports. And I must have sat for about an hour laying on my couch thinking about who in the world invented a high five. Think about that for a second. Like the high five is kind of the universal symbol of good things, right? Like you don't really see somebody do something really bad in sports and the whole team comes up and they're like, yes, right? So somebody at some point thought to themselves, I have such excitement in this moment right now. Like, I am thrilled about what has just happened on the field here today. Like, I am overcome with emotion that the most logical thing that can happen is this moment is that I take my hand and I gently slap it or I, with force, slap it against the other person. And what that will exhibit is excitement. Like, somebody had to think about this crazy act when you think about it and it becomes this kind of universal symbol of freedom. It becomes this universal thing of excitement. Turn to somebody, give them a high five this morning. Come on. That was pretty terrible, but we'll move on past that. Nothing about that looked exciting from this vantage point at all. I actually think we should start all over. (laughs) But seriously, if you've played a sport and you do something great and you see people coming up and high five, it exuberates something. It gives us something. And I think when we think of the essence of freedom, when we can take principles of things and we can examine our lives, then what we truly, truly see, we will see an excitement about our lives. If you're living heavily this morning, man, you just like there's something in you that's it's heavy, it's burdensome, you can't put a finger on it. I want you to open your heart to the word of God this morning and see if there's anything that resonates with your spirit. Let's pray this morning. Father, we love you. Your word is the light. To our path, God. It's a lamp unto our feet. <clears throat> and I pray right now, these next couple minutes, Lord, before we enter and engage again into worshiping you, you'll stir our hearts to hear your word, and to apply it into our lives, God. Oh, Jesus, we love you. We can't express enough how much we love you, but we pray that your word will express to us this morning how much you love us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Forgiveness is a funny thing. Forgiveness is a very funny thing because most of us think of forgiveness that it's a good idea until we really have to give it. We can justify why we shouldn't give it. Forgiveness means something like we can we can validate why we don't need to forgive and why, we, why we're vindicated in our anger towards one another and our lack of, of extending that olive branch of forgiveness. But it's funny because... You know, forgiveness, what it really comes down to, and if you don't remember anything else I say about this this morning, for true biblical forgiveness, it comes without limitations. It doesn't come with boundaries. Forgiveness is forgiveness. It's that. It doesn't matter if the person really even asks for it or not, but forgiveness comes without limitations. It doesn't come with these boundaries. It doesn't come with this, well, once this person changes, then I'll forgive them. No, forgiveness is a biblical virtue in Colossians 3 12 through 13, it says this, As those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, that's us, put on a heart of compassion, bearing with one another, and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And so we see this huge commandment, really, that it doesn't give us this option out. It doesn't say, well, if these things come, I'll forgive, and if these things come, I won't. If this person does this or that, then truly... Um, I will forgive or I will choose not to forgive. It legitimately, the Bible always drives us to a place of forgiveness because of one crucial thing. Because of how much we have been forgiven. I'm so thankful I've been forgiven for much. I've been forgiven for much. There's a story of two old friends and for years they had been at odds with each other. And the one man uh, was deathly ill and, and, and he was dying and the other person came and he decided to visit him and to make amends before this person had passed away. And the person, the old man who was dying, he looked at him and he said, listen, I need you to forgive me before I die. And the person that he was at odds with, he looked at him and he said, absolutely, these things bring us into perspective of the right things. And so I want you to know where you're for, you're completely forgiven. The the man then proceeded to get up and to leave the room and the man who was dying, the sick man, he looked at him and he said, but I need you to know one thing. If I get better, then I take it all back. (laughs) You see, that's how forgiveness doesn't work. Forgiveness doesn't have rules, doesn't have reputation, doesn't have these limitations that we give upon it. Forgiveness, it's a biblical mandate, but forgiveness isn't necessarily the reconciliation of a relationship. I think that's where we get Confused. We look at forgiveness and we say, well, if I forgive, then I have to allow this person within my life and all of these things. Not really the Greek word translated forgiveness. It legitimately means to release, it means to let go. It means to say that I won't carry that grievance anymore. That forgiveness is our choice to release a person from an obligation for a wrong committed against us. That's what it means. And so in our hearts, as we're looking to forgive, the New Testament times, The word was used, we have to understand this, was to cancel a debt. Somebody did something wrong to us. Somebody has done something we don't agree with. Somebody has done something that affects us. Then our immediate response really has to be that we forgive them. We're releasing them from that debt, regardless of even if they've asked for it. But within our heart of hearts, we have to live this life of forgiveness. But we have to ask ourselves, why is there such a struggle to forgive something that somebody did? Why do we struggle with it so hard? Because there's a bill out there. And what we feel in our lives at times is that bill's not been paid. I've not been vindicated. We insist on being paid. But what happens is this. Years and years go by and the offender will not pay the bill. And so what ends up happening is we build up bitterness and bitterness. And what happens is that person who sinned against us is now causing us to sin against ourselves, really. We're allowing this bitterness to build up. And if we can be the recipients of such a great forgiveness, we have to look and say, well, why cannot we forgive so freely? But I want to tell you something this morning. When we discover that we are the ones that have been set free... That we are the ones that have been forgiven much. That we are the ones that have been forgiven for so many transgressions against the Lord that I want to tell you, in our lives, we live in a spirit of freedom because we easily can forgive. And we must maintain and develop a strong capacity to forgive. Amen? Amen? Now that means in any circumstance. And anything that what we've been through, Martin Luther King Jr., he said this, who, he who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. There is some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. <clears throat> and when we discover this, we are less prone to hate our enemies. See, lack of forgiveness, it doesn't reveal something about the person who's committed the sin against us. Lack of forgiveness reveals something about us. You hear what I'm saying this morning, church? It reveals something about us. And so how far are we willing to go to forgive? At what instance do we enter into our relationships understanding that we are not a perfect people, that we are not even a completed people? Say that with me this morning. I'm not finished. And God's not finished with me. I'm glad to know that because if this was the finished product, I'd be sorely disappointed. But I'm glad to know that God is not finished with me yet. And so what I need to do is to look and to lead and to enter into every relationship that I am in, leaning forward with the heart of grace, with the heart of mercy, knowing that God's not finished with me yet. But it's all upon how we pounce upon things. See, we look at people in two different ways. We look at people and we say, number one, this person is going to hurt me really, really bad. It's inevitable. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to keep a tally in my mind of how often this person will hurt me and disappoint me and fail me. And I will keep a tally. Or we enter into relationships and we say, this could be a God-ordained friendship, relationship, whatever it might be. And I'm willing to learn from one another. I'm willing to know that I'm going to be disappointed. And honestly, I'm going to disappoint. That these are two things that are inevitable in every single relationship. Amen? There's a story that Chuck Swindoll says. I love it. He says that there was a married couple. And he said this married couple was going through a really rough patch for a long time. And so they went to see a pastor. And the pastor said this. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to learn how to communicate better. He said, I want you to create a fault box. And what I want you to do is every time somebody does something that hurts you, Every time that somebody does something that disappoints you, every time that that person does something, I want you to take and write it down and put it in that person's fault box because then that's them assuming ownership that you did this. This is your fault here. So a month went by and they tested this theory. And at the end of the month, they got together and the man opened up his fault box and the woman opened up her fault box. And the man opened up his fault box and he began to read slips of paper that said left dirty socks on the floor. Didn't take out the trash didn't put the peanut butter and jelly away, didn't do all these things, and he had a pile high, a list of papers, and the wife opens up her fault box, and she pours it out, and she has uh, a a pile high of papers, and as she began to pull every one, the same thing was written on every single card, she picked up one, and it read, I love you, she picked up another card, it said, I love you, she picked up another, and card after card, the husband simply put in and wrote, I love you. I would dare to say that in that argument, the husband is the winner on that one. (laughs) Well played, sir. But see, it's all about how we enter into relationships. Do we enter into relationships full of grace? Or do we enter into relationships full of wrath? We're waiting for people to disappoint us. In our verse this morning in Matthew 18, 21 through 35, it says this, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to 70 times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. And he cried, this I'll be patient with me, he begged. And I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, (coughs) canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees in the same way and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said, I canceled all of your debt, uh, all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Now, this is a powerful scripture. There's a lot of lessons in here. One of the most lessons we learn here is true forgiveness. It really needs to go beyond any means of reasonable human limits. Human in, uh, true forgiveness in our passage, Peter asks Jesus, how many times should he forgive someone who sins against him? And Peter he goes, he goes right for the perfect answer. It's like in, in, in when you're in Sunday school, when you're a little kid, right? And, and, and the children's pastor, whoever asks the, asks the question, what do they tell you? If you don't know the answer, raise your hand and say, Jesus, why? Jesus is always the right answer. Peter kind of goes for that same thing here. Where, where Peter comes in and he says, I, I know, it, is it seven? Should I forgive them seven? Why? Because seven is a perfect number in the Bible. You know, it says that in scriptures and some rabbis went a step further and they taught that three times, uh, uh, three times was enough. So what Peter does here in his little uh, cunning ways, he says, well, the rabbis are teaching that six times, roughly two times three, right? Plus one is six Six times. So, so is seven good enough? Because that's a step above what we've been taught as children. And Jesus kind of turns Peter's marvelous answer upside down. He says 70 times seven. Literally, roughly, if you did the math, you're looking at 490 times per offense that you're looking to forgive. And Jesus, what he's trying to do here, what he's saying is is to human ears, it's absolutely absurd. Peter's saying, I have a hard, hard enough time forgiving somebody seven times. Some of us have a hard time forgiving a person one time. Our leashes with people, with each other, are so short. That a person doesn't have a chance to win, and Jesus kind of flips this upside down, doesn't he? He says, "Keep on forgiving, keep on forgiving, keep on forgiving." He destroy he destroys any kind of reasonable human standard, and he says, "You keep on forgiving." The concept of what Jesus is trying to get across here is what: when it comes to forgiveness, don't keep score. Don't keep tally marks. Don't do that. But keep on forgiving even when their offensives are too numerous to count. And I love in that scripture that it says that we forgive from the heart. Because many of us do this. We're tricky. Oh, I forgive them. But we know our hearts are as hard as concrete. We're angry. They don't leave any door open for reconciliation. And that is, to me, I believe the true Test of it that we cannot place limits on forgiveness, but you know you are in a spirit of forgiveness if you in your heart are desiring reconciliation. You say, How do I know if I've forgiven someone? Well, you say, I know I've forgiven them because I pray and I hope that there is a door open for reconciliation. Now, sometimes God has to make that door evident. We can't force that door open, we can't force a time of reconciliation, but the Holy Spirit needs to move sometimes in our lives and in our situations, so that reconciliation can happen. And reconciliation looks different. It might mean just a one-time meeting with someone to go over whatever issues that you're dealing with and to say, we're at peace with this. We're not necessarily going to spend holidays together, but you know what? We're at peace with this. It is what it is, and I'm okay. I've forgiven you, and I pray blessings upon you. So I ask you this morning, what standards of forgiveness do you follow? Why is it important to know this? Because this helps us live free, amen? When we live in a spirit of forgiveness, we live free. Are you someone in this room where you're holding on to something because you feel you're vindicated to hold on to that something? Are you forgiving according to what you think is reasonable? Or are you measuring your forgiveness against the word of God? Are you following what Jesus has set us to do, forgiving lavishly? Forgiving unselfishly. In our story, Jesus knew that his disciple would struggle with such a high standard. You and I, we struggle with this high standard as well. It's a difficult standard to live into. So he tells this parable involving a king. And there's some really interesting facts that go within this story. We see that how much did the servant owe the king at that point? Well, 10,000 talents. One talent was approximately 6,000 denarii at that particular time. And a denarius was a day's wage. And 10,000 talents in this story would therefore be equivalent of 16 and a half years wages for 10,000 men. In layman's terms, that is billions and billions of dollars that this man would owe to the king. And what does he do? It doesn't say that he just gives him grace and allows him to pay it back. The king says that he, the, the the word says that he forgives it. He forgives him of it. What's the moral of the story within this parable Jesus is talking about? That we have to understand how much we have been forgiven. You hear me this morning, church. Do you have a deep understanding? See if we look at this story, the servant represents you and me. The king represents God. The huge figure of billions and billions of dollars is representative of how much God has forgiven us. And I'm so thankful to God for so much in my life. But I'm so thankful for his forgiveness (coughs) and his grace. And when we realize just how completely God has forgiven us of all our sins. It ought to produce out of you and I an attitude of forgiveness towards other people. No matter what, we measure our forgiveness against ourselves. And when we fail to forgive others, we're acting against what Christ did for us. That's where forgiveness begins, it begins at the cross. Let me say that again forgiveness begins at the cross who was the cross for it was for you and for i and when we get that deep revelation of understanding what the cross did for us in terms of forgiving and canceling out our debts i want to tell you it should be easy for us to cancel the debts of others forgiveness begins where we realize where you and i have been forgiven and that brings me freedom to know how much I've been forgiven in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sinned for us. So that him we might become the righteousness of God. I would dare to say that becoming the righteousness of God is living in freedom. Amen. Amen. Smack someone and wake them up this morning. That we can live in this freedom in Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Church, that's living free. That's living freely. And so for you and I, the commandment comes for us to forgive others as lavishly and completely as God has forgiven you. Fully. And we can say, I forgive you and I desire reconciliation. To what form we can figure that out. But after having been so lavishly and so completely forgiven by God, you and I have an obligation to forgive others of their sins. Some of us are carrying a lot of baggage from our past. That there's a lot of hurts. That there's a lot of things. Listen, here's what Jesus wants us to understand, though. And it's a hard truth. But it's a good truth. That if you want to be forgiven by God, what we have to do is we have to forgive others. I can't ask God for something I'm not willing to give myself, right? I can't say, God, forgive me of much. Forgive me of all my wretchedness and all my depravity and hold ill will against someone for whatever it is that they have done. James two twelve, 12 uh, chapter 2, 12 and 13, it says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the biggest problem Jesus had with the Pharisees. There's no mercy. There's no grace in them. In Matthew 18.35 in our scripture, This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brothers from the heart. That should scare us in a good way. That should scare us to biblical action. Amen. There's bad fear and there's good fear. And I think the good fear spurs us on to biblical action. And it makes us holy and blameless before the Lord. It doesn't bring judgment upon us. It doesn't bring weight. What it does is it brings freedom. And it says I have to live according to how Christ lives. Why? Because I am a disciple of Christ. And the ultimate disciple forgave me for much. So I must forgive others for much. Why? Because he desires for me. To live in freedom. Many people in this auditorium this morning, you've been wronged by someone at some time. I believe as many of us that they've been horribly wrong. Sexual, physical abuses have happened against us. I understand that. Mental cruelty. I understand that. You lost a great deal of money that you've put in some terrible circumstances. I understand that. I get that. There have been terrible things said to you, done to you. Against you in certain ways. I understand that. And maybe there's some people in here. That haven't experienced anything like that. But what you did experience. Was painful. And it was demeaning. The passage this morning. At the beginning of this message. For if you forgive men. When they sin against you. Your heavenly father will also forgive you. Heavenly Father, but if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. See, there's a difficult but a very, very healthy discipline in the Christian life. And it's, it's, it's this, that we don't point fingers at what other people have done, but we do as we spend more time looking in the mirror. And see, when you look in the mirror, you realize what we have done against God. But when we look in the mirror, we also can celebrate and know what God has done for us. See, it's an unhealthy thing to live into this heaviness of I have just broken God's heart. Yes, it's important to recognize that and it's important to give validity to that and it is important to repent of that. But it's also important to focus on on the positive, the good things that God has done, the forgiveness that He's given to us. Because it's the forgiveness, it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. It's the repentance of our heart that leads us to do the things of God. And what these things will allow you and I to do is to walk in a spirit of forgiveness no matter what has happened to us. Have you ever met someone who you've heard their story and they're living free in forgiveness? You see stories now with the internet all over the place of people forgiving people for atrocious acts against them. It's only by the Spirit of God that they can do such a thing. But what they are doing is they are choosing not to let somebody live rent-free in their mind for the rest of their lives. What they're actually doing is saying, I am releasing this thing into God's hands because I'm not going to hold this against them. And so part of living free... I believe, is living in forgiveness. But there's another aspect I want to talk about this morning. Forgiveness, we understand that we have to work on forgiving each other. Amen? We have to work on being more of a forgiving people. And I don't think that there is a better place to start than forgiving ourselves. How many of you at one point, don't raise your hand, but one point, maybe it's right now, maybe it's this season of your life, but you have a hard time forgiving yourself. You've made some poor decisions in your life. Man, if you could go back in time, you would do things so differently. And when that season of your life comes up, that there's a regret. (laughs) When that season of your life comes up, and if you go, if I could just go and do that differently, I would do it. And what ends up happening is is there's nothing wrong with that feeling, essentially. However, what is very, very important is to make sure that when we're talking about forgiving others, that we have a healthy dose of being able to forgive ourselves from our own trespasses against God. Because what the enemy will want you to do is to live in that failure. Amen? He wants you to live in that failure. He wants to remind you it, not from a grace-filled place. Because listen, when I look back on my failures, listen, I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed. I feel terrible. But what I quickly need to do is I quickly need to transfer that thought process and to go, but how good is God? How good is God that he can even forgive me for that thing? Because when I look at me, if I was God, I don't know if I'd forgive me for that thing. I don't know if I'd have it within me. But how marvelous and how majestic is God to be able to even still send his son on the cross for me. A worthless sinner living in the grace of God. How good is my God who loves me. See, I live free in that. But some of you have lived for far too long not able to forgive yourselves. Maybe it's parenting. You can go back, oh, if I could just go back, I would just be such a different parent. I would do things different. I look at my kids now, and I'm disappointed at myself because I should have done this and this and this and that. Maybe it's your career, and you go, I didn't take this opportunity to do it, and I feel I invested in this poorly, or, or I spent too much time doing this when I should have done this, and there is just a cloud over you, and you've not been able to forgive yourself of your own failures. And I pray that the Holy Spirit releases you from that this morning. I pray that the Holy Spirit releases you from that. In Luke chapter 5, there's an interesting story I want to look over for the next couple minutes before we spend some time at the altar. In Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, turn with me if you would there in your Bible. It'll pop up on that screen. but I want to read this to you. And it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him, talking about Jesus, to hear the word of God, <coughs> he stood by the lake of Gennesaret, and they saw two ships standing by the lake, but the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and he taught the people out of the ship. Now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a drop. And when Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. We have toiled all night and have taken nothing. Listen, every one of us has fought the battle of failure. All of us have. There are many different kinds of failure. And listen, not all failure is sin. Nobody wants to be a failure. Nobody wakes up in the morning and goes, how can I really fail today? Man, my goal is to really mess things up in a really bad way. But it's this—it's—it's it's, it's the path of life. We will fail, and there's a difference between experiencing failure and learning from failure. Even if there's suffering in failure, there's a big difference, and actually, a huge difference from all of those things in actually being a failure. There's a huge difference, and everyone fails from time to time. And my whole prayer is that we learn from these failures, but there's an important distinction, and you and I, we need to remember it well, that to fail does not mean that you are a failure. I'm speaking to someone this morning. To fail does not mean that you are a failure, but the devil would want you to believe that. The devil would want you to believe that every time you make a mistake, every time you stumble, every time you fail, that you yourself are defined as a failure. But remember something, that life is more than just a few happenings. It's more than just a few decisions. No one is a total failure and no one fails all the time. That you and I have the grace of God, but what Satan does is he turns a magnifying glass. He turns a telescope upon our own mistakes and failures. And what he wants you to believe is that the failures that you do make you a failure. But I want to tell you something different this morning. You are not a failure. The devil likes to blow up our failures. He likes to blow them out of proportion. He likes us believing, listen, that we are no good. But the Bible says this, that Jesus says that he prays for us. Did you hear me this morning? That Jesus prays for us. He says this, my little children sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. When Christ is your advocate, you are not a failure. You are a free man or woman in Christ. Luke twenty-two, thirty-one. 31, Jesus says this, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. See, the enemy wants you to believe a failure because the moment you believe you are not a failure, you have the power to make other believe, others believe in him that they are not failures. They're not failures. You know what they are? Forgiven. We're forgiven. That's what we all, we're all forgiven. And on the heels, on the heels of every one of your failures, you can be sure that Satan is lurking around the corner. He's sneering, he's chiding, he's jeering, he's blaming, he's shaming, he's condemning. He's doing all of these things. He's mocking, he's accusing, he's lying, he's pretending to be your friend. But truly, he tries to convince you that because you have failed, that you are a failure. You're not a failure. Not in the eyes of your creator. Not in the eyes of the God who has a plan and a purpose for you. But what you have to understand this is if you fail at something, it is not a disgrace. You may think it is. Honestly, the closest people in your life, they may think that your failure is an absolute disgrace. You better believe that the devil wants you to believe that your failure is a disgrace. But Romans 3.23, not 3.22, But Romans 3.23, it says, Powerful man for us, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Who does that include? Man, me. Guess who else that includes you? Guess who it includes? Us. It kind of levels the playing field when you think about it. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But failure is not a disgrace. Why? Because God's grace is bigger than our failures. God's forgiveness is bigger than our failures, church. Our biggest failures do not have to define us. There was a boxing champion, James Corbett. And when he he was asked this great question, if you're a boxing fan, you'll understand this more. But he said this, what's the most important thing for a person to do to become champion of the world? And Corbett responded with this great, great quote. He says this, you fight one more round. You fight one more round than the other guy. You get up, back up. You fight and you fight and you fight. There are many illustrations in this world of many incredible people who've lived. Who at one time in their life, they were deemed as failure. Walt Disney was rejected by the Kansas City Star. He was told by them, listen, you should give up. This whole journalism thing. You should give up this whole uh, cartoon thing. I don't think you're going to make it very, very far. The first time Gershwin played the piano in public, do you know that they laughed him off the stage? Did you know that, Pastor Billy? They laughed him off the stage. Well, you know now, sir, okay? <laughs> they laughed him off the stage. The very, very first time that he had ever played. And anybody who knows anything about composers... They know about the music that he wrote, the classics, the classical pieces. Michael Jordan is very, very famous. He was cut from his high school basketball team. I think that paid pretty well. Played out pretty well for him because he didn't let it define him. None of these people let those things define him. You know who else looked like a failure in many people's eyes for a few days? Jesus. Jesus probably looked like a failure. Here's the Messiah. Hanging on a cross. What is he really doing? He talked a good game, but there he is getting beaten, getting bruised, getting put upon the cross there. But listen, his supposed failure in the eyes of people was not a disgrace. What you need to believe in your life is this. No matter what you're doing, is it's always too soon to give up. It's always too soon to give up. When is it okay to give up? Not, never. Never. That we understand in our lives that God is not dead, that he's still alive, that with all, with God, that all things, I love that we sang that this morning, with God, not on our own strength, but with God, all things are possible, Amen? amen? With God, all things are possible, that he wants to lift us above our circumstances, that he wants to lift us above our decisions, our failures, above our mistakes, above our shortcomings, and set our feet free on solid rock. Who is he in Jesus Christ? He wants to set us solid. And no one, I believe this with all my heart. I heard this quote this week. I read it. No one is a failure who tries. No one is a failure who tries. That the only thing that is worse than a quitter is the person who is afraid to begin in the first place. The only thing worse than somebody who quit is the person who's just too scared to try because they're too scared to fail. I, I used to read a book uh, uh, in high school, and it was a little tiny book, and it was by Michael Jordan. And, and this book, what it was, was it was all of his failures. It wasn't his great statistics. It was all the free throws that he had missed in his career. It was all the game-winning shots. It was literally so defined of all the times that he dribbled the ball off of his foot, whether it be in practice or within a game or whatever. And the whole premise of the purpose was this. He said this. He says, I can deal with losing. What I cannot deal with is not trying. Some of us, we've been so crippled by our failures that we don't try anything anymore. We definitely don't try our hand at forgiveness. Why? Because we've reached out our hand to forgiveness and it's come back to bite us. And those bites hurt. Amen? I understand that. But the hard truth, the difficult truth is this, is forgiveness in the Bible is not an option. Forgiveness in the Bible is a mandate. It's a commandment. Forgiveness of people. Forgiveness of ourselves. What we lean upon in these times is Philippians 3.14. I press toward the high mark for the prize of the calling in God, in Christ Jesus Christ Jesus, Paul doesn't sit here and say, I'll coast towards the mark. I'll hopefully just kind of make it to there one day or another. But no, he just says, I will press towards the mark of the high calling. And another thing for us to remember is this. If you're struggling with failures that you've made within your own life, is this, remember, failure doesn't mean forever. It doesn't mean that you are forever. Failure Failure need never be final. It Need never be final. You don't need to throw in the towel. You don't need to quit in whatever it is that God's called you to be, to do whatever it might be within your life. If you say, I failed as a parent, do me a favor. Don't give up parenting. If you say, I've parented poorly in my whole life. This day forward, you choose that I will parent properly. I will parent biblically and I will start fresh because God has given me grace and I can turn this thing around. If it's something within your career, you pray that God gives you the strength to find that right career within your life. It's this extending forgiveness. You go, I've forgiven, but I haven't forgiven the right way. I'm disappointed in myself. There's no condemnation in Christ. I will forgive biblically as I need to be and I will forgive myself and I will forgive others because I will stay in the game. And we stay in the game of living biblically until the final out, until our final breath is here on this earth. When do we have to stop forgiving when we're standing before Christ? That's when we stop forgiving. We don't quit. We don't quit until the final out. You know, this year has been an amazing year in sports. All the last second victories. I don't know if many of you watched the Super Bowl uh, uh, last week. What a terrible, terrible game. You be quiet, Billy. Don't say a word. Man's at my house cheering. But listen, it's been an amazing year of sports. Why? Because there have been several teams. You look at the Cleveland Cavaliers. They're down 3-1. It's never been done. They come back. They win the NBA championship. You look at a last-second victory in NCAA football. uh, Clemson Tigers, they win on the last second. They're not favored to win. You look at all of these teams that have done it. By the way, there was a little baseball team in Chicago who were down 3-1. Hadn't won a World Series in about 108 years. And they come back and they win because God is a Cubs fan. Evident and obvious. I don't know why you people don't see this. And the New England Patriots, down 25, they come back and win yesterday, who cares? But there's one attribute that all of these teams had. They looked at the scoreboard, but the scoreboard didn't define their effort. They said, We still have a chance. And they went out and they worked the plan and they kept doing it. I'm call the worship team up. I'm going to call the ushers to prepare. This morning, I want you to know this, church. I want you to hear me this morning. There is always, if there's still breath in your lungs, there is always time to overcome and succeed. You are not a failure. You are not a failure. When you know Jesus as your personal Savior, you become what Scripture tells us this. Listen to me here. You become a child of the King. You hear what I'm saying this morning? You become a child of the King that royal blood flows through your veins, that a royal robe of righteousness is absolutely around your shoulders, that you are worthy to be forgiven, not because anything you did, but everything that He did for you. As we prepare to respond in our giving this morning, I want us to give of our offering, but I also want us to give of our hearts. I want us to examine our hearts this morning. The next few minutes as we worship Him, let's give. Let's give accordingly knowing we're free people. Father, I pray for every person that gives. Lord, that you would bless them. As we feasted off of your word this morning, Father God, may we respond in a way that brings honor to your name, Lord. Thank you for every person that gives. Sacrificially, willingly, Lord, bless them abundantly in Jesus' name. Amen.